If you have your Bible, I encourage you to open it up to Ephesians chapter 3. The scripture that the Polycarpios read for us earlier, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. I, uh, one day while um, I was in my office, um, a man showed up at the church building and he was asking for money. And uh, he caught me at a busy moment. I had a lot I was trying to get done by the end of the day. And um, he started telling me about all of his misfortunes. And as he was, I recognized that he was someone who we as a church had helped before. And I also realized that the story he was telling me didn't match up with the story he had told me last time as my memory became clear as to who this guy was. And so I started asking for some ways to verify the need that he was saying that he had. And I also explained to him that, that I didn't have spare cash lying around, that we have a process for helping people. We have a benevolent fund and a benevolent committee, but it would, it would take a little time to get answers from the committee. Well, at this point he got nasty with me. And he said, the church doesn't really care about the poor. We're hypocrites. We're too busy with our religious activities to care about those that God cares about. At this point, he was red in the face. He was yelling at me, and he was telling me that I was a fraud, that I wasn't in touch with Jesus. And then he stormed out and took off out of the parking lot. How did I respond? Well, I was rattled. I was hurt. I was angry. I'm thinking, who does this guy think that he is? He's being so insensitive. He's being so inappropriate. But then I I prayed and I said, God, help me not to miss what may be true about what this guy said, just because I don't like the way that he said it. Because the truth is that I was distracted with religious activities and I didn't care about him as much in that moment as I could have. And I was polite to him, of course, but maybe he sensed my heart. I don't know. And I'm not saying that I should have necessarily given him money, but sometimes there's a message that we need to hear and we can miss it because we don't like the messenger who's bringing it. And I'm convinced that's true for some of us when it comes to the subject of racism today. The protests and the riots, the anger and the vitriol in the media and on social media, the accusations of white privilege reminds me a little bit of being in college. There were were some times where I was made to feel guilty simply because I was a white straight male. Yet if we have ears to hear, if we are practicing the sensitivity that we've been talking about in our series on transformation, then we have to look past the politics, we have to look past the rhetoric, the shaming, the accusations, the fear and anger, the polarizing tactics and strategies, and we have to ask, Lord, is there some truth here that we need to hear? Over the past several weeks, that's what I've been trying to do. I've been trying to listen. And I've learned some things that that have surprised me about the level of racism that still exists in America. Let me tell you why they surprise me, because I lived in my late 20s in the District of Columbia, 
in many ways a, a racially divided city. I worked with many black colleagues. I helped plant a multi-ethnic church led by a black pastor. I had black friends. And along the way, they taught me about their experience of racism. They taught me how a young black man can't get a cab at night in our nation's capital because of his race. About how they wondered when they went into a job interview if they'd be rejected because of the color of their skin rather than what was on their resume. I also read the key books at that time about racism and racial reconciliation. I marched with promise keepers at the Stand in the Gap rally on the National Mall. I thought I understood racism, but somehow there were things that I missed. I know about the terrible history of racism and slavery in America. I know it still lingers today. I have a friend in Austin who both he um, and his white wife have been stopped by the police for the same issue with their vehicle on separate days, a small issue. His wife was treated courteously and respectfully. He's black and he was treated with a completely unnecessary and degrading use of force. I also know of course that it's not just a black and white issue. Our country's diverse, we're multicultural. I mean, just think how many ethnicities are represented in CBC. I know every black person is unique and individual. So is every white person and every other person of culture, every one of us. Yet, I, I don't think I realized how bad racism still is in the US. I don't think I realized that things like what Barbara just described happen still with a level of frequency that they happen. Somehow I missed it. And so I might have been tempted from reading the news to think that the riots and the racial discourse in the past several months, but really past five years or so had mostly been about politics. Yet in the past weeks, I have had black pastors and black friends, people more politically and theologically conservative than I am in many cases, come up to me and beg me and other white pastors to hear the cry of pain and desperation coming from the black community right now. They're urging us to hear how much they still experience racism, how much it still hurts, how damaging it is to them and to their children to go through life being treated less than because of who you are and how God made you. Just a week ago, I got a note from someone who used to attend CBC they're black, they're probably more conservative than I am. And, and they said, gratefully, their experience as a black person at CBC was completely positive. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> That's awesome. Yet they said on many occasions, they did experience racism in Westchester County. And they added, I've heard many half-hearted and disingenuous discussions of how the church has to balance its view on this topic of race, especially from pastors. And this is painful. They go on, my life and my children's lives are not just a political issue. Well, the elders at CBC feel like this is worth taking a few weeks on in our sermons on Sunday mornings. And we don't want to wade into all the politics of it. Rather, we want to ask, what does our Bible say about racism? What does God's word have to say on this topic? 
Well, here's the answer I think a lot of churches would give. The Bible's against racism, of course. Christians should be kind to everyone. But we can't get distracted by issues like this from our main responsibility to preach the gospel. We must keep our focus on the good news of Jesus Christ who reconciles sinners to God. And then let's trust that as Jesus changes people's lives and hearts, people will begin to treat each other as they should. So let's keep our focus on the gospel. Let's not get distracted by racism or environmentalism or a million other issues that we could get distracted by. Well, what I'd like to do this morning is look at the Bible and see if this is what the Bible has to say about this. Particularly, I'd like to ask the question, what does the gospel have to say about racism? Because certainly we must keep our focus on the gospel. So does the gospel say anything about racism? Or is racism one of those secondary issues that we can get distracted by as a church when we really need to keep our focus on the gospel? Well, first of all, as background, I'd like to point out that in Bible times, there was plenty of racism. Let me just give you two examples. Do you remember in Luke 4 when Jesus first kicked off his ministry? He went to his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. This was at the very beginning of his ministry. And what he said there almost got him killed as his hometown turned violently against him. Jesus stood up in the synagogue. He read from the prophet Isaiah. He read, the spirit of the Lord is on me to preach good news to the poor, freedom to the captives, etc., And then Jesus had the audacity to end this reading with, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. But this isn't what made everyone so mad. In fact, Luke tells us after Jesus said this, I'm in Luke chapter 422, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? But it was what happened next that caused them to turn on him. Jesus reminded them, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. And then he added, verse 25, I assure you there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet none of them was cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian. A widow in Sidon and a military officer in Syria, neither was Jewish. Both were other races. Yet God sent his prophets, his messengers, his blessings to these people of other races And God will do the same with me, Jesus implies. And how do the people in Nazareth respond at this point? They are furious. They are so furious that they try to kill Jesus. Why? Their own racism, more or less. Viewing themselves, their own people, as better, as more deserving than other peoples who were different from them. Second example, the Apostle Paul. 
In the book of Acts, later in the book, chapter 20, Paul's in Jerusalem at this point. A mob has found him. They've been stirred up by a lie that has been spread that Paul had brought unclean Gentiles into the temple. And so Paul's been arrested in the midst of this riot, and he asks his captors for a chance to address the people, and they allow it. And so Paul, ever looking for an opportunity to preach the gospel under any circumstances, in great boldness, he tells the crowd his testimony. He proclaims the gospel, that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is Lord. And all the while, the crowd is listening respectfully and quietly until until Paul adds, Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And then we read, the crowd listened to Paul until he said this. And then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He is not fit to live. And a riot erupts again, and Paul is almost lynched. Again, what touched them off? Not the gospel, not Paul's theology. They were listening quietly and respectfully to that point. But the idea then that God would send Paul off to invite the Gentiles, non-Jews, to be part of God's people. Again, the crowd's response shows their racism in reacting to this. Their 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 prejudice against those not of their own ethnicity. Some Jews, at least at that time, had a lot of racist attitudes toward Gentiles, not Jews. Unless we be too hard on the Jews, many Gentiles felt the same way back about the Jews. It went both ways. There's racism in the Bible. And so the question is, what does the Bible have to say about it? More specifically, what does the gospel have to say about this racism? Should we put racism on the side and get on with the more important task of proclaiming the gospel? Or does the gospel itself have something to say about racism? Well, for, for help in answering this question, let's continue to look at the Apostle Paul, who was, was as passionate about preaching the gospel and keeping that primary if, as anyone was. Let's read what he has to say, particularly in the, the text that was read for us this morning, which is a letter written to the churches in the, the um, Asian city of Ephesus. And, and we're picking up that letter in chapter 3. And Paul begins in our passage for this morning, right in verse 1, with the phrase, for this reason. And um, as soon as we hear for this reason, we've got to flip back a page. We've got to go back to chapter 2, and we've got to figure out for what reason. And if we go back to Ephesians 2, what we see there is that Paul has laid the gospel out there. For instance, in verses 8 to 9, we have the famous wonderful words, For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Wonderful words, gospel words. And then in verse 11, as Paul continues, 11 and following, Paul goes on and expresses how this vertical reconciliation by grace, through faith, between us and God also achieves a horizontal reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles. Addressing Gentiles 
in Ephesus who are outsiders to the Jewish religion, Paul goes on in verses 14 and following, and he says, For Christ himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Do you hear what Paul is claiming here against the backdrop of Gentile Jew racism of his day? Paul, God's, purpose, God's purpose in sending Christ was first of all to reconcile people vertically back to God, and then second, it was to reconcile them, Jew and Gentile, to one another so that they could all be a part of God's family together. To make one new people, removing hostility, restoring unity, bringing together a new family who together equally follow God. Sounds a lot like racial reconciliation to me. And according to Paul here, it's right at the heart of the gospel. It's primary to what the gospel accomplishes. And that becomes even clearer as we move on and look at today's passage now that we know what for this reason refers to. For this reason, Paul begins our passage. What reason? Because of the gospel. Because God has reconciled us to himself by grace through Jesus. And because God is making one new people, erasing barriers, which kept people apart, reconciling people to one another. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus... For the sake of you Gentiles. Did you hear that? For this reason, because of the gospel, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Why is Paul a prisoner? Because he's bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. And what does the gospel do? It reconciles us vertically to God, while at the same time reconciling us horizontally to one another. Breaking down barriers, making one new unified people in place of the divisions and the hatred and the suspicions and the animosities. Look at verse 13 as well. Paul adds, I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. My sufferings for you, Ephesian Gentiles, which are your glory. How are they your glory? Well, because my sufferings, my efforts, the things I am persecuted in to bring you the gospel, they reconcile you to God. And also they are your glory because you gain admittance to God's people on equal footing as equal partners as part of the one new people of God. Notice that Paul suffers. Paul is persecuted because of his task, his calling to invite the Gentiles to come to God through Jesus Christ and to come as equal partners, equal participants in the people of God. If you know anything about Paul's ministry, and we began looking at him when we were doing our series on Acts earlier this year, and you think about the, the challenges and the oppositions Paul faced, he suffered a lot. He faced a lot of opposition. He was persecuted a lot. 
And the problem particularly that some Jews had with Paul, and we saw this earlier with the crowd in Jerusalem in Acts 22, their problem was that Paul was hanging out with Gentiles and inviting those Gentiles to be a part of God's people without those Gentiles first cleaning themselves up and becoming like us Jews, becoming Jews, in fact. In other words, there was racism that was behind some of what Paul suffered. Sure, it was racism supported by religion. That's too often the case. The Jews would be quick to give religious reasons for their being against the Gentiles and not wanting to include the Gentiles. The Jews were God's chosen people. The Gentiles were unclean. They were ungodly. But Paul says, no, not anymore. The gospel erases those religious reasons. The gospel overturns those reasons and welcomes the Gentiles in just as they are as equal members of God's family. Again, I want to be careful to point out it's not that the Jews were racist and the Gentiles weren't. It went both ways. But Paul's particular battle was with Jewish racism against Gentiles, supported by their theology, justified by their scriptural interpretations, but racism nonetheless. And so Paul, a Jew, is persecuted by his own people because he stands against this racism and seemingly sides with the other race, hanging around with Gentiles, bringing them to church, treating them like they're equals. And Paul's reason for doing this, Paul's motivation, is what Paul unpacks in our passage today. Paul says, verse 3, God has revealed a mystery to me, a secret not made known to people in the past, verse 5, but now made known through the gospel to God's holy apostles and prophets. And what's the secret? What's the mystery? Verse 6, the mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Did you hear that? How are the Gentiles heirs, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise? Through the gospel. Racial reconciliation, racial healing is a gospel issue. Because the gospel demands that all peoples be invited in. That all races be welcomed into God's family on equal terms. The gospel demands that there be one body, one new people of God. How? Not by anyone's works or merits. Not because anyone is better or more superior. No. Because of grace. Because of grace. Because nobody deserves it. Yet God invites everyone in. By his grace alone. As is frequently said, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And so if you read the book of Acts or you read the book of Galatians, you realize that Paul recognized better than most people in his day what all of this meant, what the implications were. Paul realized that it meant that Gentiles, Galatians, Romans, Greeks, Corinthians, Egyptians, Sidonians, Syrians, barbarians, they didn't have to become Jews to be fully members of God's people. 
No, they could come as they were, as Gentiles, as Romans, as Sidonians, etc. They could come as they were, no matter their race. They could come bringing their race with them and be equally and fully accepted as full participants of God's people. And so Paul faced opposition, as we saw earlier from the crowd in Jerusalem, because of his own people's racism against Gentiles. For Paul, racism was a gospel issue. It cut to the heart of of why Jesus came and what Jesus accomplished. Because Jesus' death and resurrection accomplished two things. Vertically, first, it reconciles us to God by grace, not by anything we've done. And therefore, secondly, it reconciles us horizontally to one another. Because we all come equally by faith. None of us have anything to boast about. Not about our righteous deeds or our moral character or our superior work ethic or our intellectual sophistication or liberal arts education. Not because of our skin color or our superior culture or anything else. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And so racism has no place in gospel-centered churches. If we understand the gospel the way Paul understood the gospel. All right, well, where does that leave us today? Where does that leave us as we see the issues of race swirling around us today? Well, for one thing, it means that we can't get caught up in the politics of this issue. We can't let whichever side of the political fray we're on dictate our sympathies on this one. We can't say, well, I'm going to care about this because I'm liberal and this is a liberal issue. And those conservatives, they're all racist until they agree with us liberals and our agenda about this. We can't say that. But we also can't say, I'm not going to care about racism because I'm conservative. And the liberals are harping on this and they're exaggerating and they're full of hate and they're turning a blind eye to mob violence and they want to get rid of the police and George Soros is probably funding the whole thing and he just wants to destroy America. And so I'm going to sit this one out because I'm not liberal. We, we can't go there either. We can't react politically either way. We can't let politics define what we're for or what we're against. We have to go to the gospel. And the gospel gives us an incredible vision of the new world that God is making, where there is one people, racially diverse, but unified together as one family, as we each turn to Jesus and we begin to allow God's kingdom to shape our lives and our hearts. And this gospel vision is to be realized, first of all, of course, within the family of God, among Jesus' followers. And then it flows out from there as we lead the way, hopefully, by example, and share God's vision with others. Let me just close with these amazing, beautiful words of Paul in verses 10 and 11. God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold, the multifaceted wisdom of God should be made known. 
to rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's the manifold wisdom of God? Well, read it in context. It's Paul's message that that all peoples of the earth, Jew and Gentile, in all their diversity, together are reconciled to God to be one family, one people, unified in love despite all of our diversity. Let me ask you, who else could pull that off? What government, what university, what nonprofit? No, it takes the wisdom of God to reconcile diverse peoples into one loving family. Of course, it will never happen if God's own people don't embrace God's wisdom, God's mystery, God's gospel. But Paul has high hopes for God's people. And so he goes on that this is going to happen through the church. It's through the church that this wisdom is now being made known to the whole world. Wow, that's a high calling. That this wisdom is going to be made known to rulers and authorities, even in the heavenly realms, whoever those are. Those dark behind-the-scenes forces we don't fully understand, which in some way control politics and government and the isms of the world. They're all on notice, Paul says, that Christ is now overthrowing their power in favor of love and forgiveness and grace and, yes, reconciliation, first between us and God and then between us and one another. No matter our skin color, no matter our culture, our race, we're all to be one people in Jesus Christ. And so when we see racism, if we're Christ's people, it should be a no-brainer. We care about it. Because the gospel tells us Christ came to heal it and to overturn it. Well, to be continued next week with part two, Greg Howe will be joining us to give us that message.